Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Hear these words of encouragement in the book of Hebrews. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the six elders here at this church. And, um, you know, uh, I get to preach maybe a couple times a year. And it's a little stressful because uh, I think for a lot of us, when we come up here, we don't want to let God down. And all of you, by faith, decided to come here today, and we don't want to let you down either. Uh, and uh, I just couldn't help but reflect back on this week uh, with this kind of stressful process and just realize just how many generous people are here um, that are willing to help me. And, uh, you know, the elders helped me. Um, a lot of friends helped me. I came in and, you know, everyone was encouraging me. And, you know, I'm, I'm really humbled uh, that in a stressful time, I can see God working through so many of you. Um, so I'm excited to be here. If you're visiting, uh, I hope you feel welcome and honored. Uh, to be here. And if not, let me know after the service, and uh, we'll try to improve. Um, we have been uh, looking at Hebrews. We're in the middle of this uh, series on this uh, really great book in the Bible. And um, the series is called, Is Good Enough Enough? We've been asking these questions, um, like, is my life really as rich as I want it to be? Is it this abundant and fulfilled life, and um, if I'm falling short of some of those expectations, whether they're my expectations or somebody else's expectations for me, is my life still good enough? 
Now, Hebrews uh, was written um, to uh, these, uh, this early group of Messianic Jews, Jews who were following Christ, and they were struggling with their faith. And uh, we're discovering together uh, over these past 11 weeks now that uh, Jesus is better than anyone or anything, and that uh, we're messy people, and Jesus rescues us from our mess. Uh, that a follower of Christ is not sleepwalking, they're engaged, they're rested, they're encouraging, um, not extremely religious, but actively exchanging the lies of this world for the truth of God. That Jesus is totally holy, but at the same time, he is totally sympathetic with us. He's our anchor when times get tough. And he's a heavenly priest who's laid down his life for us. That the tabernacle and other Old Testament trappings are just a model of the reality that Jesus has brought. And that uh, we no longer live under sin because of the once and for all victory that Jesus has brought us. And then last week, Elder Dave uh, preached on some good things to come and the need for us to encourage each other when times get tough. And this message today, it follows closely on his, and it's a key part of what makes all of this work in our lives. Uh, So for the first 11 installments, we looked at Paul's explanation for God's plan and his provision. But starting with Dave's sermon last week, Paul has shifted to coaching us now on how to live as part of that plan. The first record we have of Jesus talking about faith was from his Sermon on the Mount. And he described the large crowds that he was speaking to, you of little faith. So he said, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? So there's some interesting clues in this first mention that we have of Jesus talking about faith. Okay, the typical person starts with little faith. The typical person worries about having enough stuff, not worrying about enough faith. So it appears that worry could be an opposite of faith, and faith could be a cure for the worries of this world. So Jesus is saying, if you're worrying, stop it. Stop drowning in your feelings. Open your eyes. Look all around you and think about what you're seeing. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. How God cares for them and how much more God cares for you. Stop trying to control things or worrying about your lack of control. Seek God's ways, his plans, and then not only will you receive what you've been worrying about, but something so much better. But there is no guarantee. First, we must take that step of faith and then wait to see if God actually shows up. You know, when I was young, I used to worry a lot. And, you know, I worried about being the child of immigrants. I worried about being different. 
and being accepted. But as I began to seek God, I discovered that, you know, being different can actually be, be great because I can leave my average self behind and I can worry less about what averagey, averaging people think because even though it's important to be sensitive to everyone, it's way more important to be um, concerned about what the anything but average Heavenly Father thinks about me, about us. So what Jesus said about these large crowds of, of people, um, oh, you of little faith, you know, it turned out to be true because we see from John chapter 6 that these massive crowds who were following him, who had eaten as many filet of fish sandwiches as they wanted. <laughs> they desert Jesus when he says some hard things about himself. Things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have life. And, you know, that's something we call communion now. But um, all these people desert him en masse. And uh, Jesus looks around. His 12 disciples are still there. And he asks them, are you going to leave too? And Peter replies, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. And Peter, in his reasoning and faith, he summarizes this whole book of Hebrews that we're studying. Jesus, we see you and believe that you are the greatest, and we're going to follow you. You are the best option for us. So this is a clear picture of faith for us. The multitudes who like free food but not the hard teaching, they don't have much faith. And the disciples who are all in and wouldn't even think about abandoning Jesus here, they have faith. And this also aligns with that parable that Jesus taught about the sower and the seeds because many who hear the word of God, it doesn't take deep root. But for, for some, faith does become deeply rooted. And then what Dave talked about last week from Hebrews 10, the capacity to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, it's made possible through faith. So let's return to the scripture that uh, Beth just read for us. One word that jumps to my mind to describe this great chapter is audaciousness. Hebrews 11 is a list of people, each with huge faith. And I love studying each one of these people but, you know, we don't have time to focus on any of them today. Uh, there's so much to learn from each one of them. I encourage you to go and, and take a look at each one of them. Uh, but Merriam-Webster defines audacious to be intrepidly daring and recklessly bold. And Hebrews 11 makes a lot of audacious claims. So in verse 3, uh, we find that by faith, a person can understand so faith is a prerequisite to understanding the unseen because the world is not self-explanatory. If there is a God, then I can explain the universe. But if there is no God, then how do I explain things like right and wrong? Right and wrong doesn't make sense if there's no God. Math and physics doesn't have anything to say about right and wrong. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has already accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change 
whatever view your reason takes. Uh, This is from his book, Mere Christianity. Additionally, Lewis explains there that our faith and reason are actually on the same side, battling against our imagination and emotion. So he talks about how someone can understand and believe that anesthesia works, but they can still get a panic attack when they see that the doctor might start a procedure before the anesthesia is kicked in. Uh, Another example is a child in the pool who sees that no one is sinking around them into the water, but they'll still worry when the parent or swimming instructor lets go of them. Ironically, it is our eyes that are failing us because when we see all the surgical equipment or we see the deep water, that's when we lose our faith. We forget what we carefully thought of and completely reasoned before that. So while the truth is true, it doesn't always feel true. So Lewis advises that our moodiness working against our faith can be mitigated by praying every day, reading the word every day, and meeting regularly with other believers, which is what Dave also preached about last week. So, you know, if you've been here a while, you know that we talk about spiritual disciplines, like engaging with God's Word. Uh, You can see it in our scripture reading every Sunday, our send-out verses, and uh, our coffee break verses throughout the week. So, you know, these are basic ingredients for growing our faith. And if you're not finding yourself in the Bible regularly, then get on our website and subscribe to the Coffee Break Verses. And, you know, it's very quick. You can click on that email, and you're in the Word. So as Beth read, uh, Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is confidence, confidence in what we hope for, and assurance. It's assurance in what we do not see. So if we can't measure it, but we still believe it, we're invoking faith. Now, I'd like to propose that science and faith are are similar because a good scientist always asks, what's causing what I'm seeing? And without having all the evidence gathered, a scientist comes up with this thing called a hypothesis or conjecture or theory. It's a group of suppositions that are assumed to be correct but not yet proven. And in order to apply theories... You need faith because the theory is not yet proven. And in order to prove a theory, you also need faith. When this large Hadron Collider was built to detect the Higgs boson, you know, that thing they nicknamed the God particle, it took a lot of agreement, a lot of countries and scientists and institutions, and it also took $13 billion. So that agreement and that investment is similar to faith. But our eyes and our faith are for different things. We need our eyes to see what can be seen, and we need our faith to see what can't be seen. So our our, our eyes, they they process the light, and uh, they send messages to our brains. And one part of our eye is a lens, you know, so behind our cornea and our iris and pupil, uh, there's this lens, and it focuses the light for us. And faith is like an eye. It reminds us and focuses us on what we have already reasoned. And it sends messages to our brains and also our hearts and our spirit. And the better the eyes, the more we can see, the more we can understand. And the better our faith, the more we understand what can be reasoned but not yet seen. Okay, back to Hebrews 11. In verse 6, we find that a faith, by faith, a person can please God. 
in the constitution of this faith, if you look at that verse, you believe God exists, which means you have thought through his existence. You're researching God, a little bit like a scientist, thinking about what causes the universe. And if you conclude that God is true, like a scientist, then he is true not only for you, but for everyone, for everything. And so a person of faith has to actually engage their brain, think quite a bit, and then conclude that the existence of God is the best explanation for the universe. A universe with God is a better theory with more explanatory power than a universe without God. You know, it doesn't mean that our understanding of God is complete, but this is why we need faith, so that the smaller gaps in our understanding don't trump the larger conclusions of our reasoning. Okay, let's skip down to verse 9 now. By faith, a person can live as an alien in a strange land. And, and I know something about this, because when the Giants beat the super, uh, Patriots in this last Super Bowl they were in, okay, one of my neighbors in my building, they anonymously taped all these headlines of that Giants victory. Um, and, you know, it's unbelievable, the gall of some of these New York sports fans. You know, how unwelcoming some of them can be. So, you know, our church can easily be a beacon of welcome for all kinds of aliens in a strange land, given how New Yorkers treat people from New England. Yeah. So these are just some of the few, uh, many audacious things that are being accomplished with faith. And it's important to notice that in this uh, book, uh, chapter Hebrews 11, that there are both victors and also victims listed. And that means that the main point about this isn't how the world is keeping score. It's about staying true to God's word. So back in April, I put up a slide uh, of movies, and I thought I'd do that again. And uh, so if you could take a look at these two uh, for a minute, tell me what you think they have in common. Animals, adorable, yeah? Anything else? Okay. So they're both DreamWorks, too, but uh, that's not it. Okay, in, in, 18, in 1835, okay, Christianity was banned in Madagascar. And 26 years later, the, the state reverted back to religious freedom. And what do you think happened to the church there during that time where all the missionaries had left and some of the Christians were being thrown into prison? The, the church actually grew tenfold in those 26 years. And similarly, in 1949, when Mao took power in China, there were about 2 million Christians in China. And Mao drove out all the missionaries, and he killed many leaders of the church and threw a lot more in prison. But what did we see after his death and the country opening up again? There were 70 million. It went from 2 million when Mao took power to 70 million when he died. So do you ever wonder what makes a church grow? Now, if you fed this Madagascar and China data into a neural network or other artificial intelligence machine, it would probably give you this conclusion, oh, outlaw Christianity and persecute the Christians. Now, I don't think that's it, but I, I do think that in order for faith to grow, it must be tested. So Christians in these countries back during those days, they couldn't sleepwalk through their, their life. They were being severely tested. Now, my oldest child, she's going to be a high school senior, and, you know, she's taking her very last standardized test next month. Yay. 
you know, she's taken so many ACTs and APs and SAT, SAT uh, subject tests that I'm exhausted just watching her study. Uh, and being tested, I don't think it's anyone's favorite thing, but it is a little bit like exercise. If you're not feeling the burn, you're not doing it right. So wrestling with, with faith and also with doubt, it's very important. You may have heard that saying that courage isn't the absence of fear, but overcoming fear. I think his faith, faith is very similar. It, faith isn't the absence of doubt. It's being able to overcome our doubts that aren't true. Have you ever made a decision? And then after living with the consequences of that decision, wondered if you made the right decision. It could be something small like um, ordering something from a restaurant or did I take the right subway line when I see that other you know, subway leaving the station? You know? But it could be something big too like uh, did I choose the right career or did I marry the right person? Right? Now when we're looking at a restaurant menu, my wife likes to discuss her top choices with me and what my top choices are and then she likes to order different things. So if one of them is bad, then at least we have a better one we can share. Um, and diversifying your portfolio, it's great for managing risk, but faith isn't like that. You can't put half of your faith in money and half of your faith in God. You know, people try to do that all the time, but Jesus says they're going to be disappointed. So the same is uh, true for, you know, career decisions and spouses, at least for many of us. Uh, you know, after graduating from college, uh, I decided to go work for banks. And for the first 20 years, this seemed to be a good decision. But for these last seven, it doesn't seem as good. Because these new laws got passed in 2010, and that closed down my business at the bank. And, you know, each in, in marriages, you know, every spouse can maybe sometimes find themselves wondering, um, did I marry the right person? I know that my wife hit the lottery with me, but sometimes she doubts this. You know, she forgets. And I, I think, in honesty, uh, sometimes I make it very easy for her to forget. Now, how about being part of this church? Uh, we've got some real characters in this church, some colorful characters in this church, uh, uh, characters that can drive us nuts, right? And this is actually to be expected, right? Because we've got a lot of spiritual gifts and different holy discontents. And, and I think that our community, we have true diversity. It's not just photo op diversity. Um, so when someone in your church is driving you nuts, you might start wondering whether it's time to find, find another church, right? So, so faith is similar to that. You know, we question ourselves. We question God. We question our faith in God. Uh, something unexpected, very difficult comes up. Or maybe we've just been waiting on God to show up. And uh, it's been a really long time. And he hasn't shown up the way we want him to. And our faith, which seemed solid, you know, once upon a time, now, now it's wavering. Of all of Jesus' disciples, we know that Thomas struggled with his faith. And you might, might remember that uh, Elder Fred preached about this two years ago. And I don't think Judas Iscariot ever had faith in Jesus because I think he betrayed Jesus when Jesus 
didn't fit his plans. Judas rejected Jesus' plans. But Thomas wasn't rejecting Jesus. Thomas was struggling with his faith. He wanted to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but, you know, his confidence, his assurance, they were shaken when he saw Jesus die on the cross. I think the greatest deadpan line in the whole Bible is Thomas's. Let us also go to Bethany so we may die with him. As the Pharisees planned on stoning Jesus there. But from this, we can see that Thomas's faith is stronger than his cynicism because he is willing to follow Jesus even if it kills him. So this is not a man of weak faith. Now, if you are struggling with your faith, I encourage you, do what Thomas did. Tell your friends, I need God to show up here. And, and if he doesn't, I don't know if I can keep following him. My confidence, my assurance is shaken. And, and ask God, you know, God, I'm really having a hard time with you, so increase my faith. This is what the, the disciples did too. And don't turn your brain off. This is the time to think even more about what's going on, what's happening. And then wait for God to show up. Now, you might not be struggling with your faith right now, but there's a good chance someone in your life, in your community is. And so look around you and encourage those people. We find in Paul's letter to Jude, you know, it's that tiny little speed bump from 1st, 2nd, 3rd John to Revelation, but he says something really profound. He says, be merciful for those who doubt. You know, I think it's very important um, in a faith community when we want to wear it on our sleeves to be merciful for those who are in a season of doubt. So Jesus, you know, he's extolling faith because he sees Thomas and he shows Thomas the proof that he, he's asking for. But he also raises the stakes. He says, you know, blessed are those who haven't seen but still believe. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote that when we're spiritually weak or challenged, we can't just listen to ourselves. We have to talk to ourselves. Does this make sense? Because the battle for the new creation in you and that old, broken self, it can flare up from time to time. And in these times of internal conflict, it's important to remind ourselves just how we got to our decision for God. It's important that we join with the Spirit of God to overcome our flesh. So where does faith come from? Uh, Ephesians 2 tells us that not only the grace of God, but also faith are a gift from God. And so the next question would be, okay, if faith comes from God, does everyone have this capacity? Um, I think everyone does, given what Peter wrote in his second epistle. God gives everyone a little faith or the capacity for faith. And I think life is like a pilot light. And faith is the oil or gas that can fuel an abundant life that Jesus promises for those who follow him. And then our imagination, our emotion, it's like that bucket of sand, that bucket of water sitting next to that pilot light that we can choose to dump on the pilot light. So in Second Peter, we see that God wants everyone to come to him. Okay, can you uh, flip the Second Peter? Okay, great. And so I think everyone has a capacity for faith. And one of these great theological mysteries, and, and Keith taught about this in Romans, is, is the tension between the complete sovereignty of God and the moral responsibility of every person. Now, we all know 
that people are morally responsible because we are constantly being offended. If we didn't think people were morally responsible, we would never be offended by anyone. We would all think that President Obama and President Trump are exactly the same. I don't know anyone who thinks that. If God is all-powerful, which he is, it's a statement of faith, then he is fully in control. But then how can we be morally responsible? So God allows us to choose to love or not to love. We choose what to do with our capacity for faith. And we choose the object of our faith. We can choose to have faith in nothing. We can choose to have faith in a false god. Sometimes even good church people can be confused. We think we're putting our faith in God, but we're really putting our faith in one of his gifts. We can put our faith in eternal life or another person or, or a tradition or an institution, or an interpretation of Scripture. And sometimes our faith gets shaken in a good way because we need to learn that we put our faith in something that was connected to God instead of putting our faith in God. So a long time ago, in a church plant far, far away, I was serving uh, on the church board and as the worship director, and we'd been together for several years when our pastor started acting strangely and even in an unhealthy way. So the chair of the board comes to me, you know, in the darkness of night, and he says, um, you know, we need to do something. And we agreed that, you know, let's see if we can find the pastor some help and give him some time off. And then we go and talk to him about it, and the pastor got really angry. And so I stuck with the plan because I committed to the chair. I was stuck with the plan. But the, the, the chair kind of caved. You know, remember that story of Uriah and Joab putting, pulling... I kind of felt like that, and it was a really painful time. Um, But, you know, it was during this time that I learned about uh, Ken Ken Sandy's The Peacemaker. And then when I got here and I became an elder, uh, Elder Fred started talking with a lot of passion about peacemaking, and I was able to instantly support him and encourage him because I had already, you know, gone through this. And back before then, in 2003, when uh, we first started coming to Trinity, Keith was getting up and telling everybody, you know what? God's really leading me to change the governance of our church to form an elder board in accordance with the Bible. And I was able to, you know, go to his classes and support him and ask him some very specific questions on what's this going to look like while many leaders were still kind of skeptical of this change. And, you know, I wouldn't have been able to encourage Fred in peacemaking or Keith in obedience if I hadn't gone through this season of, of testing my faith. And so, you know, again, it's this realization that the object of faith sometimes isn't God. You know, our faith can shift from God to our status here in the church or our friends or the traditions here or or, or a leader. Like we all know, I think now, that Keith and Deanne are going to be heading back to Texas. And if you put your faith in Keith, that's going to freak you out. Right? But but if you have your faith in God, you're not going to worry about it. Not that Keith hasn't done a great job, and um, I'm not going to miss him, and um, I made him promise that we could still text during football games. Okay, so the question that comes up is, how much faith does a person need? And, and, and I'd say to that, you know, we really don't know. Jesus talks about faith as small as a mustard seed. Uh, what we do know is when a person says Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, 
that God raised him from the dead, we, we know that's enough. Okay. The question that is even more important than how much faith, though, is what is the object of your faith? Because our faith isn't meant to uproot trees like uh, Jesus taught, um, you know, that if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can tell this mulberry tree to get up and go in the sea. Because, you know, our faith, it's not meant for that. It's meant to be uh, faithful to God's calling and his plan for us. So I said earlier uh, that faith is an opposite of worry and a cure for it. But let's look at these verses now from Philippians 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In Philippians, Paul's encouraging us to worry. But in this case, to worry about whether we have the mindset and the mind of Christ. And by worrying about becoming more like Jesus, we keep him as the object of our faith. So what happens with real faith? Uh, In my 14 years here, here are just a few of the audacious things that I have seen. So I saw Mae Chen and James Leonard and many others go down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and go to Brooklyn and Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy. And they were helping those who've lost their homes by cleaning up, by rebuilding. And, you know, I saw Keith and Mike Whalen, Samantha Blair, and now Sarah Page and Jamie Craig. They're going to Rhonda every year. And... They raise over a 1,000 child sponsorships, and they're building all these homes, and uh, they're expanding into schools now. And, uh, you know, I saw Linny go lightly. She's in my small group, and my whole group, uh, the Wednesday Women's Bible Study, and, and many of you come around Levy Deke, who was also in my small group, uh, all those months that uh, his wife Stephanie was in the hospital. And, you know, she went home to be with the Lord, and we continued to walk with him and little Toma. And I see Jaime and Emmy heading across the Atlantic to a country that's like Madagascar and China. So helping those in need, you know, with medical care, with emotional care, with education and training and infrastructure and giving generously and, um, you know, building businesses that create jobs and uh, bringing the freedom that comes with the gospel. I'm seeing all of this from people here who have some of that audacious faith. So uh, when, when did the uh, worship leaders get here today? Like 8.30 in the morning? That's like faith. You know, when the prayer team comes up and prays, that's faith. You know, when you decide to give generously, that's faith. And what do people see when they see that? They see the kingdom of God because of your faith. And this is the abundant life we're called to. Okay, I have a photo that was taken a couple of weeks ago. Oh, awesome. That's taken with a low-res phone. It looks really great on the screen. Good job, guys. High-quality engineering. Um, So two young brothers were riding on their boogie boards, and they got caught in this very strong riptide off of Florida Beach, and they're screaming for help. And so there are four adults with them, and, and so all the adults go in to try to bring them back in. But then the whole family gets caught up in this riptide. And they're all in danger now of drowning. A bunch of strangers on the beach, uh, by one report, it was 80 people. They formed a human chain to go out and rescue this family. And so you can see some of that picture there. 
Now, some of these strangers, they couldn't even swim. And so they could have feared for their own lives. But they all reasoned with their minds that they could be part of this plan to save lives. And this reasoning became faith. And so they get into this swirling, powerful ocean that's threatening to drown someone, and their faith steadies them so they could complete the rescue. Now, this is why Jesus comes to save us. And this is what God wants the church to be. For us to together extend ourselves, to hold on to each other, to hold each other up, and to encourage each other keep becoming more like Jesus. Be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Because our old self, our, our sinful nature, it still haunts us and it leads us to death. But we can encourage each other when our faith is wavering, when your faith is wavering, when his faith is wavering, and when we're struggling with the goodness of God, when we're struggling with the promises of God. Because most of the good news cannot be seen with an eye. It must be reasoned and believed by each person hearing the word of God by people who are doing audacious things because of their faith. Just like in Hebrews 11, their faith becomes our sight, our, our faith can be a sight, become sight to those who are around us. So next week, uh, Hebrews 12 is the chapter that Keith will be looking at, and it starts with, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And so these witnesses are all the people who have completed their race of faith. And, you know, all of us know there's a difference between the casual observer um, on the side of the streets when a marathon is going and they're watching the race and cheering. There's a difference between that person and the person who's at the finish line, who's completed that race, and now they're watching and waiting for you to finish your miles. So Jesus and Peter and James and John and Paul all these Old Testament heroes, uh, even my mom, who went home to be with the Lord eight years ago, they're all watching and cheering us on, and it takes faith to hear them. So let's all run our race well. Now, when Keith mapped out this Hebrew series for this installment, he mentioned temporal sacrifices are made in order to step into the eternal glory and fulfillment God has for us. And while this is true, the way I think about it is that sometimes we have to give up something good in order to gain something better. I recently read about this uh, very um, well-respected um, football player named Patrick Peterson. And during the off-seasons, uh, he would usually go out and golf three times a week. And he had a four handicap, which, which is really good. Uh, but then he had a daughter, and he doesn't go out golfing as much. And his handicap isn't as good anymore. But he refuses to blame his child for his suffering golf game. It's a sacrifice, yes, but it's this worthy sacrifice that's full of love and empty of all regret. So all of us, you know, we will have to pass on some things that we want, but only to re receive something even better. So in the conclusion of all this, I want you to have faith and the right object for your faith and trade the bad for the good and the good for the better. A life of faith has some doubts, but no regrets in eternity. I look back on my regrets. 
I have more than a few. And in every case, you know, I didn't act in faith. I didn't decide in faith. So go out with faith, hope, and love. We know the greatest of these is love, but we cannot love like Jesus unless we have faith in him. So don't worry about the things of this world. Use your God-given capacity for faith and the God-given faith to seek him and, and to increase that faith. The only worry that we should have is, are we becoming more like him? And if you're struggling in this time and it happens, don't just listen to yourself, but talk to yourself and listen to the word and to your friends who are going to encourage you because they have faith too. And ask God to show up. Remember all the good reasoning you did in your decision to follow Jesus in the first place. And finally, let's link up with each other here at Trinity and extend ourselves as part of this human chain that points other people to the good news of Jesus. You know, people will be saved through hearing the word of God from you. Live the audacious life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to seek you and to find you through your Son, Jesus. Increase our faith. Give us the confidence we hope we have in you. And give us the assurance that you keep your promises. You're true to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.